Welcome to Through the Ringer. I'm your host, Tate Frazier, and it's Friday, so you know what's happening. Nora is back on the show. Nora, great to see you. The background is looking immaculate as always. You know what, Tate? <laughs> This is getting real old, partner. <laughs> yeah. I'm having fun. It's good every to single see you time. too. I'm yeah, happy to great. see you. It's great to talk NFL football. We got some games uh, going on, going off abroad. Uh, we're going to be in Germany this week. We'll talk about that. But first and foremost, you know what it is. I bring you on the show. I bring up the Ringer Power Rankings, and I run through them, and I ask you what's happening here. Do we be- do we believe it? Do we buy in? Let's start. We got the Philadelphia Eagles, 7-1. and one. They're at number one. We got the Kansas City Chiefs at number two. The Ravens at three. Dolphins at four. 49ers at five. Of those five that I just listed, which one really stands out to you? And why is it the 49ers? Because we're still believing in Brock Purdy after three straight <laughs> losses. First of all, the rigor NFL power rankings, just living rent-free in your mind. I love it. I, I frankly love it. Um, yeah, look, it's it's been tough sledding for the Niners, but I think they're going to be okay. They swung the trade at the deadline, like to see them still building, getting Chase Young in there. I think that's going to help them defensively. That's been the real sore spot, right? Like, I think the Brock Purdy thing is more of a coming back to earth. And the Brock Purdy discourse Mm. got so out of hand that it feels a little bit more jarring than it is. My belief is that if you're Kyle Shanahan, you probably had a handle on the fact that especially if you got banged up on the offensive line with some of those playmakers, that things might get a little bit tricky for a second, but that's okay. I, I can, I count on those guys to figure it out. They will be hopefully healthier as the season goes on. The thing that's been a, a little bit interesting is if that defense has taken a step back because mm. that is supposed to be a real, especially that defensive line that is supposed to be a real part of the equation here, right? Is, is balance. So I think they're okay, but I really liked seeing them make a move at the deadline you know, Chase Young is a move that impacts them for the future. I do think they belong still in the top five, but it, it is becoming a little bit of a, a glut of everybody looks good. Everybody could potentially win a Super Bowl, but there aren't a lot of teams that don't have some sort of bad moment on the resume right now. Yeah, it kind of becomes like an existential question at some point where you're saying to yourself, is anyone good in the NFL, right? That's what I look at the power rankings, and then you can poke holes in every single team. Um, Luckily for us, though, we get two teams in the top five playing this week, and they're actually playing in Frankfurt, Germany. So the biggest game of the week is going to happen at 9.30 on the East Coast, 6.30 on the West Coast. What do we expect to see in this game? And do you think the Chiefs will bounce back in this game? Yeah, I do. I I really, I mean, look, I don't want to totally let them off the hook for losing to the Broncos because we shouldn't be in the business of doing that. But Mahomes had a flu that he was getting hooked up to an IV for both the day of the game, the day before. So you're feeling like that. And like, we all know what it's like to have a really bad head cold or just feel really crappy. Mm -hmm. And then you go a mile above sea level and you got to play a football game. I'm just, I, I, I'm not for it. I would not be interested in doing it. And I believe that it severely affected him and that we should basically toss that game out. Uh, Kansas City, Miami is really interesting because I do think the Chiefs have the most to lose of maybe any team playing on Sunday because if they have another bad result or another just sort of shaky offensive result, one, they could very well lose this game. Because they're playing Miami. Miami can score the ball. 
but the Chiefs have still been fifth in passing offense, third in, in passing defense. So for all of the consternation about whether they've taken a step back this season, the results have still been there. But now we're going to see them have to test it against an opponent that should be able to score and score in droves. So I've been really impressed by what Mahomes has done this year to scramble for a first down every time they really need it and just do enough to win and be so solid and so savvy. But I would like to see him in a position where maybe you got to score 40 to win the Mm. game. Probably not, but maybe, you know, get above 30, do something like that. Um, Because they have been, uh, their EPA per drive is the worst right now that it's been in a season in Kansas City since 2016. So where they are hurting is in compared to past iterations of the Chiefs, more so than when you stack them up against the rest of the league where offense is down and where just a lot of teams aren't as good as the Chiefs. So I think Miami is sort of a good test of, okay, is it just that the Chiefs have set unbelievably high standards for themselves? So when we see them go out and have an efficient 24-point performance, it feels bad and wrong? Or is it that there, there's actually something up here? So I'm really excited for this game. I'm sorry it's at 6.30 on the West Coast, but <laughs> breakfast with Patrick Mahomes and Mike McDaniel, I'm into it. They're going to put up points in that game, and that's going to be a fun game to watch. Another big game this weekend, the Seahawks, who have kind of become the darling of the NFL, right? When you talk about the top teams and sleepers when it comes to the playoffs, everyone's fallen back in love with Pete Carroll. They like the defense. Gino, we all fell in love with him last year. And now they're taking Shane on the Waldron, Ravens. Shane Waldron, getting a yeah. lot of, like, football hipster cred. Yeah, Jake Bobo, the hipsters like him too, right? So there, there's a lot going on with the Seahawks that the hipsters like. It's so there's Seattle. All- it's very Seattle. They're all getting but, their like nice coffee roasts and talking about Shane Waldron and Jake Bobo. It sounds nice. It sounds like yeah, a nice great. specific and, Northwest uh, Witherspoon fall we like, right, as a defensive rookie of the year candidate. So the Seahawks have a lot going on. They're going to go to Baltimore to play the Ravens. Ravens favored by five and a half points in this game. You and I are big Baltimore Ravens fans. We have been buying in from day one. We don't like their dumb mistakes, but we do like this team. And they own the first, the first quarter. They are the first quarter Ravens. What do we expect to see here? Can the Seahawks go to Baltimore and get a win? You know, I I really believe in the way that the Ravens are playing. So I think it's going to be tough. This is a real, this is a real matchup of um, like football hipster crush teams (laughs) pitting, pitting Lamar against Gino, pitting these two organizations against each other. I I would, I would go Baltimore here. I, I just, I think when they don't shoot themselves in the foot, I think that is quietly a really good and really balanced team. Um, Special teams, funnily enough, have have been an issue for them. But in general, I just think that Lamar is able to do so much. And the Seattle defense has been interesting. They've they've sort of taken a step forward. Um, But I don't think that they're quite in the place where they would... They haven't seen a quarterback like him and an offense with a quarterback like him. And and I think it's probably going to give them some trouble. Yeah, we've seen Lamar humble uh, many a people during his time in the NFL, most recently the Detroit Lions when they came down there. So I think uh, this could be a good game for Baltimore to send a message again to the rest of the league. Last game that I want to hit before we take a break, we got the Buffalo Bills going to Cincinnati. Joe Burrow looks like he's back to being Joe Burrow. Josh Allen and the Bills, they've been on a roller coaster. Everyone's trying to figure out who this team really is. Uh, Bengals favored by two and a half points in this game, Nora. 
What do we expect to see? And do you think this is Joe Burrow's game to send a message to the rest of the league that Cincinnati is a true contender to win the Super Bowl this year? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if you'd asked me, so when I was doing the power rankings, Cincinnati was a really interesting one because normally, you know, it's supposed to be reflective of the entire season and, and we're halfway through here practically. And you, you want to, you don't, you rarely move a team five spots up or down from where they were. Usually it's sort of like incremental. Okay, let's see it again. Let's see it again. Let's see it again. There's a moment when I'm I'm putting together my list and I'm I'm getting to the Bengals and I'm like, and I must have had them mid-teens somewhere. And there's part of me that's just after after that game last week thinking, I don't know, they could go in the top five. <laughs> like the Bengals can win a Super Bowl right. if Joe Burrow is going to be clearly healthy and if they're going to play like that. So if the Chiefs have, uh, I think Kansas City in some ways has the most to lose potentially, of those key matchups. I I think Cincinnati has the most to gain because Burrow does look really healthy. They had the deep ball going, but they also had this really efficient short intermediate offense working for them. I think especially in this, this coincides with his health because it, it impacts their, when they can use their shotgun run game versus their under center run game. They have they looked like the offense that they want to be last week. And so if if we can see that again and see that against Buffalo, and in particular, I mean, I would pick the the Ravens in that Seahawks game, but the Ravens have a tough opponent. Cincinnati could potentially leapfrog the Steelers and the Browns in the division because they're all all those three teams are four and three, but technically, um, Cincinnati would lose the tiebreaker. So technically they're still in last place. They could do as much as, as leapfrog those guys and say Seattle pulls the upset. Mm. Then Joe Burrow and the Bengals who had this, this disastrous September into the start of October, all of a sudden they're a game back of, of the division leader. Yeah, and Joe Burrow, he keeps getting away with it. He starts out the first four games of every year, and you're saying, what is going on here? And then all of a sudden, he's back. He's a sandbagger. I see it. I know a sandbagger when I see one. So I, I shout out to Joe Burrow. He knows what he's doing. He's he's trying to play the media. He's trying to manipulate the narrative. It's smart stuff, savvy stuff from Joe Burrow. We're going to take a quick break. Are you saying he's faking it? No, I'm just saying it's savvy. I'm not saying he's faking it. I'm saying gamesmanship. I respect it. We're going right, to take a quick take break. It. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the trade deadline and the Raiders. Welcome back to Through the Ringer. We're still here with Nora, and we're talking NFL trade deadline. That's right. On Halloween, in case you missed it, the NFL was done. They said all trade, all acquisitions, all the movement is done. We have made it, and now we have to ask you a simple question, Nora. Who won the trade deadline in your estimation? Well, so we talked a little bit about the Niners earlier, but I really do think it's one of the two NFC contenders who actually got off their butts at some point and and made a move at this trade deadline that was a little bit sleepy. Um, it, the Eagles are definitely up there because I liked the the trade for Kevin Byard. 
I think it's good value. I think it's just another like a week before anybody else is doing anything. Howie Roseman is just working the phones and mm-hmm. and don't answer the phone value. if Howie calls. Right, that that's the rule. If you're a GM, yeah, just don't answer. Yeah, say <laughs> what does Howie want? <laughs> don't answer. But I think by the by the time the trade deadline ended, the other NFC contender that had really gotten better is San Francisco because I really like the Chase Young move. So it's a third round pick. He'll be a free agent after the season. Um, it could end up being a short term rental, but if it is, and he goes somewhere else, he signs a big deal somewhere else. They will almost certainly recoup what they spent on him as a compensatory pick. So if he goes and signs a big contract, you probably got a compensatory third back next year. So there's a, you know, you have to wait an extra year for it, but the risk is really low. I also think it's a really smart time to buy on a player like Young who had that great rookie year and then he tore his ACL and then had a tough go of it in the few games he played last year. But he's had a really good season so far. He's been looking better and better, and it looks like he is healthy, and it looks like he is back. So some of the struggles and the injury history is, is I think, baked into the price. But there is at least a chance that he's going to return to form and be a really formidable addition for them opposite Nick Bosa, who... You know, that's still a deep defensive line group, but they've lost guys over the last years, and it seemed like he needed help. It seemed like they needed somebody else to to make an impact. As the season rolls on, you know, we start seeing coaches get fired. The first one that got fired was Josh McDaniels with the Raiders. So what's next for Las Vegas? What's next for the Raiders franchise, the brand? Antonio Pierce says he wants to bring back the old Raiders. Nobody really knows exactly what that means. It's been so long since we've seen them. Um, you know, so so what do we what do we say about this situation and what do we expect? to see moving forward man i i think we say that josh josh mcdaniels apparently learned absolutely nothing right from his experience coaching the broncos uh i find that hard to believe because you would think that it was dramatic enough and tough enough and obviously no one wants to be fired in season that you'd take a look in the mirror and try to not make the same mistakes twice but uh he has now been Josh McDaniels' coaching head coaching record includes he's 20 and 33 in four seasons. He's been fired mid-season twice. And then the third one, in some ways the most successful, was the job with the Colts that he backed out of at the last second. So it's not a great list of accomplishments there. And I do think that if you look at, at what happened in Las Vegas, it's all the same stuff, right? I mean, we've watched the the really bad in-game coaching decisions, which is one thing, but he seems to have had bad relationships with players that started with, you know, making Derek Carr kind of a lame duck quarterback there. Yeah, then they try to Renfro, right? I mean, yeah, the issues with Renfro, right? We've all seen Devontae Adams, you know, smashing his helmet and just looking really, really furious. The NFLPA survey that came out in the spring uh, had a lot to say about how he used players' time and and just that he wasn't a receptive coach, didn't really listen, um, wasn't efficient. 
with when he asked players to be in the facility, really long hours, not a lot to show for it, blah, 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 blah. And then you have the personnel failures because I think you look at a lot of, like, to sort of pinpoint where things started to go wrong, I think you have to go all the way to the beginning because he took over a team that was a playoff team in 2021, but, you know, they had a negative point differential. They'd gotten lucky. They'd won some one-score games. And I think the first mistake... And probably the cardinal sin was he bought into that. And instead of trying to, you know, build a, a young core, they trade first and second round picks to Green Bay for Devontae Adams, which, I mean, he's been really good. He's a really good player, but I don't think that that's a move that was reflective of where they were as an organization. And then they sign all these sort of random expatriates and Chandler Jones who wound up giving them four and a half sacks last year and then having a, you know, very scary in public falling out with the team and and sort of meltdown over the summer. And it's not entirely, you know, McDaniels inherited a, a, an okay situation. They'd made the playoffs, right? Like there's a lot of teams that, that can't say for that. Can't say even that, but the drafts under, the Gruden-Mayoc regime had been so bad. Um, You know, from 2018 to 2021, they get Max Crosby, they get Josh Jacobs, they get Colton Miller. Those are really the only cornerstones who come out of of those four drafts. Um, And I just don't think that they paid enough attention to the existing weaknesses on the roster. And whoever inherits this this job long-term, I think the best possible outcome is they are just a little bit more honest about it. You know, Crosby is going to be a really big decision because he is a player of superstar caliber who's probably more valuable to a real contender than he is to the Raiders right now. And if you look at that roster, I think he and and maybe Colton Miller are the only trade chips they have that would really get something significant in return. But you also have to ask, is there some value in making some players sort of untouchable and saying, no, it's, it's, it's hard to pick good players. It's hard to draft good Mm -hmm. players. If you get a Max Crosby, you shouldn't say goodbye to him. Um, I think he's good enough that that's a, that's a tough call. It's a borderline call, but in general, they're going to need to, to move some guys off of this team and tear it down a little bit and rebuild it in a way that is more fundamentally sound because they've never had the depth. They've never had enough defensive talent outside of Crosby. And there were a lot of things that went wrong with McDaniels, but I think the number one is that he just didn't recognize that. Well, there you have it. It's a long answer when we talk about the uh, Las Vegas Raiders or any iteration of the Raiders for that matter. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have Nora debunk the biggest story in football right now.
Last thing, Nora, before I let you go, we always try to get you to debunk something on the show. We, we give you a topic in sports, pop culture, and we say, Nora, please explain this to me. I don't get it. The newest thing that's happening and the biggest conversation that we have in football right now is in-helmet communication, sign stealing, and one man by the name of Connor Stallions. Can you just quickly comment on this? What are your thoughts? This is uh, This is taking the football world by storm. Yeah, well, we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. I mean, I I hope he comes to the NFL next. I love a scammer. I love a I love a scheme. <laughs> I love uh I it's a it's a new spygate. It's like spygate for the modern world. I think it's fun. I mean, you yeah. know, who knows? Maybe Harbaugh ends up ends up in Las Vegas. They can start getting those little edges. Maybe this is what turns the Raiders around. Yeah, we, let's hope so. I mean, the guys on the sidelines, it looked like he had Ray-Bans on filming uh, the Michigan State signs from the CMU sideline. Um, we had videos that are coming out now of Jim Harbaugh communicating with him on the sidelines. There is a whole lot of controversy, but it all comes down to sign stealing, which is very, you know, it feels very playground, feels very recreational, feels very, uh, you know, 12-year-old status. But it is funny. It is entertaining. And uh, I'm sure we're not done with this. We're going to hear a lot more about sign stealing in the world of football and Connor still stallions will be the face of it. I do think that he went in for one last job. I was telling you this before. It feels like a bank robber. You know, they always have one more job in them and it feels like that's the last job. And I think the CMU thing was his last job. I'm not even sure he was commissioned for that one. He just went in and said, I got to do it one more time. He got to feel the thrill of Danny ocean. Yeah, right. Literally. That's what it felt like. Um, so shout out to to all the sign stealers out there. You now have a poster boy in Connor Stallions. And uh, Nora, thank you so much for coming on through the ringer. We appreciate you as always. And we will see you next Friday. See you then, Tate. Welcome back to Through the Ringer, and joining us now, you know him from the Ringer universe, you know him from the Ringer NBA show, you know him from the mismatch, you know him from everywhere. He is KOC Kevin O'Connor. What's going on, What's man? What's going on, Tate? Thank you for having me on today. I'm very excited because the NBA is back. It's in full force. We had Chris Ryan come on mm-hmm. on a Tuesday show. He talked about the in-season tournament. He's very fired up about it. We can get to that a little bit later because there is more pressing topics, and it is the headlines of all the presses. It's one man. It's James Harden, and <laughs> now he gets his wish. <laughs> His, he gets another. How many wishes does this man have? <laughs> more uh, than three. More than three, right? More than a genie. Um, and now he's in Los Angeles with the Clippers. First and foremost, how how do we settle with this? How do we digest this? And what do we expect from this decision to join the Los Angeles Clippers? Uh, to take a line that Daryl Morey used in the past. Now he's trading away James Harden. He talked about raising your risk profile. The Clippers <laughs> are now a team that adding James Harden, they raise their risk profile. They're a team that has a lower floor a higher ceiling because look, I mean, like as good as the team looked their first handful of games without James Harden, without a trade, Terrence Mann was out. All these guys were performing at a high level, adding James Harden, who still is a top 30, top 40 ish player in the NBA. It does raise the ceiling of what the team can be. So that, that's why they ended up doing this and why it's worth the risk when you're all in with all these older guys as is. Yeah. And the Clippers, if you look at the odds right now, they're at plus 1300 to win the NBA finals. Do we think that, 
they actually increased their chances to win the NBA Finals by adding James Harden. It feels a little counterintuitive at times because, you know, our boss, Bill Simmons, said he was the the biggest playoff choke artist this century when he was talking about James Harden. Yeah. Might be a little bit harsh, but does it actually help them get get to the final destination of a title? I, I mean, yeah, like Harden has had some choke jobs. He He's also <laughs> been one of the leaders on a team that pushed the juggernaut Warriors the furthest. furthest. They went to a Game 7. They went to a Game 6. They probably would have won one of those series if Chris Paul didn't get hurt. So it's not like he hasn't had some great moments in the playoffs either uh, despite everything that was put on his back in that Houston system. Now he's a different player. He focuses more on playmaking now rather than scoring. He still can occasionally tap into the scoring. It does raise their ceiling in the sense that it increases their championship odds because he's adding another playmaking presence on the floor. I was like watching the Clippers Lakers game last night. I was there at the game and like they have Norman Powell and Russell Westbrook on the floor alongside Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and Zubats or PJ Tucker. And I'm thinking to myself, well, where does Harden fit into this? Mm-hmm. And like in some ways, it'd be a little bit redundant. And that's where the concerns would be in terms of there's a bunch of guys who need the ball in their hands or who are at their best with the ball in their hands. But the fact is, if he embraces this kind of like he did in Brooklyn, playing alongside Kyrie and Kevin Durant for the like 12 games they played together, mm-hmm. if he embraces it being kind of the lead ball handler, but still a guy who is at least willing to shoot threes off the catch. I mean, like he kind of has stopped doing that. He just has become a ball stopper. But if he can at least become a guy who like he was in his earlier years, can at least shoot a three off the catch. I think it can work a lot because you know what you're getting with him as a passer. But what happens when the ball's not in his hands? That's my lingering question about Harden and this new team. You mentioned redundancy. I think that's a good word for it because I went to the first game of the season against Scoot Henderson. Mm-hmm. I watched Russell Westbrook just absolutely yeah. dominate that game. I go to watch this team against the Spurs, Victor Wimanyama. I watch this veteran team absolutely dominate the Spurs, smack them in the mouth. Mm-hmm. And I saw an economy of shots that made sense. I saw a roster that made sense. I saw roles that made sense. And I saw a contender that made sense in front of my eyes. And now you throw in chaos. Now you throw in Harden. And now you have this question. Russell Westbrook already got asked about it. Who's going to start at point guard? Who's going to be expected to be the leader of this team? Because no question right now, Russell Westbrook is the leader of this team. But that begs the bigger question. Can the leader of your team come off the bench and still have the same sort of presence and respect in the locker room? Yeah, I mean, like I think it's possible both of those guys end up starting, and then mm-hmm. it's Terrence Mann who comes off the bench. It, like, I wonder who finishes some of these games. Uh, like, like will it be Harden and Russ and Kawhi and Paul George? Like, Kawhi and Paul George are the two fixtures of the five that'll be on the floor. But will they play small with PJ PJ Tucker at the five? Are they going to play big with Zubats? Are they going to play super small at times? Like, what do you do with Norman Powell? Norman Powell's a good player, mm-hmm. right? And like, if if James Harden and Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are ahead of Russell Westbrook on the totem pole of touches what does that mean for Russ when he is not a good shooter? Um, he's at least crashing the boards more. He's been more active with cutting. That's encouraging to see that type of development for him, at, like going back to last season with the Lakers, now doing it with the Clippers. So I, I think I think with those guys, it, it's it's tough to defend because all of them can make plays off the dribble. All of them can know how to pass the ball. And so I think that's where, like, for, for defenses having to contain them, it might become, for the Clipper side of things, what is the best, most advantageous matchup for us on offense in order to create a quality shot? And so that can alleviate some of the pressure off of Kawhi Leonard and Paul George over the course of the full season. And then during the playoffs, it's so much about matchups. So I think for the Clippers, that amount of versatility is it's different than the Suns with what they have with KD, Devin Booker, and Bradley Beal, or what the Celtics have with Jason Tatum and Jalen mm-hmm. Brown and all of their, like Drew Holiday and all of their guys. But 
as many players that you can have on the floor that can make plays off the dribble, that can shoot off the catch, that can create a shot for themselves, the harder you are to defend. And, and that's ultimately where the Clippers, you know, they get better. They get better. They traded some wings that are on the Expendable. Steep, yeah, steep decline at this right. point in their careers. I mean, none of those guys are playoff players as much anymore. But James Harden still is. Yeah, and I do like those three guys coming off the bench seemingly when you talk about Terrence Mann, talk about Bones Highland, and you talk about Norman Powell. Yeah. That's a nice eight-deep really team good. once you get to the playoffs. And a guy like Ty Lue is really good at figuring out those matchups. And I wanted to ask mm-hmm. about Ty Lue. Doc Rivers told Bill Simmons that basically once James Harden realized he wasn't going to get uh, the all-star <laughs> oh, acknowledgments, oh, he changed the way he played a little bit in the second half of that season. And, you know, if you watch it with the naked eye, you could see that maybe he did get a little bit more self he was taking a little bit more shots mm-hmm. are we worried or do we buy into the fact that he can be like 2021 nets james harden and say i'll sacrifice just a little bit because i see the larger goal or <laughs> is james going to be james because at the end of the day people are who they are right and we've learned that plenty of times over in the nba i don't know mm-hmm. um I, I think westbrook I, said that he yeah. was like i don't know either yeah. i mean i think that's really <laughs> the honest answer like russ is like we're gonna have to figure it out I mean, Harden, I, I I wrote on the ringer on Monday how I thought Harden's, this is the day of the trade, I thought Harden's best choice was to go back to the Sixers and embrace the style of play there. You know Philly actually wanted him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you Like their style of play, they're playing with motion and movement. Like he could have tapped into some of the old stuff he used to do back in the days of OKC. And He would have had eight assists with oh, his eyes closed. No kidding. Right? It would have been beautiful to watch him play basketball there in Philadelphia. The Clippers are more to his style of play, where it's a little bit your turn, my turn. So maybe that's what appealed to him, was the opportunity to have the ball in his hands and really be the the orchestrator of the offense. So will he be willing to sacrifice and, and, and focus on all those things that, you know, sometimes go beyond the scoring, the 30-plus point per game Harden we saw in the past? I don't know. We, we, we will find out. But I would think that it, he's he has to at least be knowledgeable enough to know that if you're going to a team with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George and Russ, for that matter, um, that you're going to have to share. And one thing we did learn from Russ going from the Lakers to the Clippers is he did not defer to LeBron. He really did it. Mm-hmm. But when he came to the Clippers, he deferred to Kawhi. Isn't it weird? It, it's very strange. Yes. But it, it seems like to me that James Harden at some level is going to have to defer to Kawhi. Uh-huh. And Absolutely. I think that he actually will do that for whatever reason. I, I mean, maybe Kawhi just has sort of that aura about him. He seems like <laughs> he stays out of the way. He's obviously not the leader of this team, but he does have the respect as the number one option. So that'll be another fascinating wrinkle as as we roll on with this season. On the flip side, let's talk about the Sixers because they have assets. We love assets in the NBA. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Sixers are trying to target their next star. We've heard names like Zach Levine. We've heard names kind of off the beaten path like Donovan Mitchell. Who's kind of the next disgruntled star in the NBA that the Sixers or you know some of these other top contenders may go after? I mean, I think the next disgruntled star like is somebody that's more from the team side. Like, we Mm -hmm. need to shake it up and make a change here. It could be somebody like Carl Anthony Towns in Minnesota. Granted, they had some ups and downs so far this season some highs some lows could he be the player that a team decides we need to we need to move him to make space for Gobert and we got Nas Reed coming off the bench who's really good and some Mm -hmm. other young players I drafted Leonard Miller out of the G League who had a great preseason and we'll see how he performs back with uh, Minnesota's G League team to start the year but I think somebody like that in Minnesota with Cat or Chicago I mean, Zach Levine, he may not necessarily be disgruntled, um, but Chicago, if they're like stuck in the middle, might decide, you know what? When you have a players only meeting after the first game, I I think it's time. I think everyone's disgruntled. Coach, players, front office, everybody. Mm -hmm. And I mean, to me, like Levine is the guy that makes the most sense for the Sixers. And I I, like we talked earlier about redundancy. 
there might be a little bit of redundancy with Levine and Maxi, but at the same time, I think they're different types of players. Like Levine is such a great off-ball cutter. He's a lob threat. Uh, you can shoot threes off the catch. Maxi can do that too. Like those aren't redundant skills. Those are, are skills that uh, can complement each other. Um, so and what I, a relief for Levine to go to a situation. Let's say no he goes kidding. to Philadelphia. You go from being the number one, number two guy to the number three, number yeah, four guy. Absolutely, exactly. Right. I, I think like the way the Sixers are playing. I like part of that column I wrote on Monday was like not just about Harden should go back because the situation's so appealing. It was just the situation is so appealing without Harden. Like the way <laughs> Maxi and Embiid are playing together, running DHOs, they're running like triple the amount of dribble handoffs that they did last season under Doc Rivers. They're playing at a quicker pace. There's been so many plays. Maxi gets the ball off a defensive rebound and pushes ahead with like 22 seconds left on the shot clock. They're not wasting any time getting into their offense. And it's fun to watch. So, like, Zach Levine has never been on a team that can play this type of style. Joel Embiid has always been playing at slower paces. Your turn, my turn with Harden. With Ben Simmons, a lack of spacing. This team can go five out. They can have Embiid in the interior. And if you were to add Zach Levine to that, he's not, like, you're, like, yes, who's the next disgruntled star? Like, Levine's, like, all-star, but not, like, right. superstar type of player. But... Mm -hmm. You add him to that mix, like I know it might sound nuts, but I just think with Maxi and Levine and Embiid, and then with some of their supporting pieces that they have, who are all smart, high IQ players. The Tobias Sixers, Harris, Kelly Oubre looks good. Harris looks great. Right. Oubre's like, I mean, I like Melton a lot. They Mel have good pieces. Yeah, they do. So like, I think the Sixers would be like right on that kind of second tier of those championship contenders. Not quite the level of you know Boston or or Denver um, or even like a super healthy Phoenix team, but I think I think like Philadelphia with Levine would be right there with how high power their offense could be. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the two best teams in the NBA. Welcome back to Through the Ringer. I'm still here with Kevin O'Connor, and I'm peppering him with questions about the NBA. We're early in the season right now, and there's only two undefeated teams left in the NBA, which I guess shows parity in the league. And there's one in the East, the Boston Celtics. There's one in the West with the Dallas Mavericks. Let's start with Boston because the Celtics just dropped 155 points. This big four that they have looks incredible so far. What are your big takeaways uh, from what you've seen so far in Boston? I still feel like they're not even near, near their potential right. at this point. They're uh, still gelling. Absolutely. I mean, like you're still seeing uh, the impact of Kristaps Porzingis with what he can do for that half-court offense for Boston with his spacing ability, his interior ability. Um, if you send two towards him, like Jason Tatum's open, Jalen Brown is open, and yet I still feel like those guys, Tatum and Porzingis, and then Brown and Porzingis, there's still ways for those guys to get going with two-man game stuff. Dribble handoffs, pick and rolls together that over the course of, uh, course of the season will really manifest. So Boston, I mean, they have the number one offensive rating in the NBA. They have the seventh defensive rating. Um, they're one of the few dominant teams on both ends of the floor. And yet, it, it feels like as chemistry continues to gel, that those that team will only continue to improve. I feel bad for Marcus Smart. I'm not going to lie. As I watch him in Memphis, he leads the NBA in steals right now. I feel like... <laughs> winless. Uh, yeah, winless right now. And uh, the, the Celtics defense and their championship culture continues up there. Let's talk about Dallas. Luka looks like the MVP. Let's just be honest about it. He's already had some heroics early. He looks like he's in form, to say the least. What are our thoughts on the Mavericks, and what is the ceiling if Luka continues to play like an MVP? Uh, I think they can, they can make an 
another deep run. I still feel like they need to make another move in order to be a, a true championship contender. But you have Luca playing, you know, p- perhaps better than he ever has. Um, could be the MVP, as you said. And the supporting pieces, this is all happening despite Kyrie Irving missing some time. And, and, and tweeting about the Twilight Zone yes, today, apparently. <laughs> and underperforming on the court. <laughs> right. uh, he's in the Twilight Zone on the court. So I think with, with Kyrie, uh, he is yet to be the Kyrie Irving that we know over the years. And this speaks to the guys that they added over the offseason. Like Derek Lively as a rookie center has been absolutely fantastic. He's been great in pick and rolls with Luka. And then you had Grant Williams, who just had seven three-pointers the other night, who looks like a great two-way presence. I love the way they're utilizing him. Uh, I just think with Dallas at this point, even guys like Dante Exum. Oh, come, I love Dante Exum. Coming off the bench. Uh, you know, after two, Just a two smart, years, savvy player yes. they bring back into the NBA. 100%. Very happy to see him back in the NBA. And all of these pieces seem to be like enhancing what was a very weak supporting cast last year, last handful of years for that mm-hmm. matter. And now you look at the supporting pieces around Luka and it it makes sense, but but improving on defense is going to be the key. And a lot of that's going to come down to a rookie center. Um, and that that's a lot to ask for. Yeah, Dallas is a lot of fun to watch. And uh, you mentioned Lively. I want to talk about some other impressive rookies. Lively is one of those guys that has looked great so far. Let's talk about the Thompson twins because they come mm-hmm. from overtime elite. There were some question marks, uh, you know, about how they would be able to impact the NBA game. And so far, so good. <laughs> I mean, we can start with All-Star, uh, you know, up in Detroit because he's looked great so far. I mean, his defense, he's like, it looks like an all-defensive caliber player. looks like he could get like seven blocks a game. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, he, right. He's like top five block percentage in the league <laughs> despite being a six foot seven wing. Uh, the dude's everywhere. He rebounds. He crashes the glass. He'll box out. He'll he'll do everything that's necessary to, to impact winning. And he still feels like he's one of those players where even if he shoots two for seven or, or mm-hmm. two for ten, you're still like, oh, Osar had a great game because he was <laughs> everywhere on defense, everywhere right. on the boards, making the right pass. And I mean, similar for his brother Amen, um, different, like a little, like similar types of players. Osar uh, has been better so far. Um, I had him like ranked one spot ahead of Amen, but those guys are like really a coin flip. And so much of their success is going to be about uh, situation, environments, and how they develop there. But both of them look really impressive so far. Another rookie that's looked really impressive, and he's actually leading the rookies right now in points per game. You were banging me on the head and you were saying Brandon Miller make it happen Tate you have to believe in Brandon mm-hmm. Miller I was worried I was concerned all the all the many adjectives going into his first season <laughs> but all signs are pointing to KOC he looks really good right now he looks confident he's been a nice addition they've had him mic'd up during games he's been a great teammate talking to Scary Terry talking to LaMelo getting him engaged so what have we seen from Brandon Miller so far and what do we like looks like a great two-way presence oh uh, I, I'm happy KOC a, a six foot nine playmaker <laughs> I mean he's shooting over 40 percent from three with like not just spot ups but movement threes occasional off the dribble he's brought back the mid-range because mm-hmm. as you know in college Alabama played an analytically savvy style where it was all at the rim all from three none of those guys really shot mid-range jumpers but Miller was a heavy mid-range guy in high school bringing that back and getting to the rim sort of like he did before he got hurt this past season in college. He was mm-hmm. getting to the basket more aggressively and defensively. I mean, he had the chase down block. He's fallen into some foul trouble, but I'm not against that with the way rookies get whistles. I liked some of the aggression on defense. Uh, overall, I, I feel like Miller is looking already like one of the best players on the Hornets, and I look forward to seeing uh, what Steve Clifford starts riding him for like 30, 35 minutes per game. I think he looks ready for it. I think he's got to start. Um, mm-hmm. And I know Clifford, you know, he's obviously, this is how he works with younger yeah. guys. He kind of brings them into the fold slowly but surely. But 
Brandon Miller looks like he's ready to go right no now. Doubt. So I, I hope that he gets an opportunity, and he's going to be in that conversation for Rookie of the Year. Obviously, Wimby is uh, pretty much a foregone conclusion. Let's quickly talk about him because when we talk about rookies, we got to talk about Wimby, and we'll talk about Chet too. We'll talk about both these guys. First, let's start with Wimby. Um, he's been great in spots. He looks incredible. Him versus KD was a moment in time. It felt like so. Yeah. How much are we enjoying the Wimby experience so far? Uh, I mean, like he's got an eight foot wingspan, and and he's putting it to great use on defense he's blocking shots altering the decisions of opponents around the rim like that i think it was against like grayson allen or something on, on tuesday night's oh, game yeah. where like he kind of went from the left side of the right side of the basket and Wemby he just was, stayed flat-footed yeah. and blocked him regardless <laughs> which was absurd. amazing he's had like multiple blocks like that he's already blocked clay thompson andrew wiggins mm. kevin durant he got a fingertip on the ball he's blocked some mega stars and he's eventually like he's officially <laughs> in the zone now when guys drive they look around for him like you know like it's a helicopter above him yeah. I mean, yeah, we wild. saw this before opening night with God Shamgon, assistant coach on the Mavs, was like was like using extended arms to like contest the shots of players during right. practice. Teams are doing specific prep for Victor Wembanyama, um, and offensively, you hope it comes together. The team needs to figure out how to utilize him, like in terms of getting him towards the basket with lob opportunities, even some post ups against mismatches, and his three pointer still needs to develop. He still needs to improve his decision making both on on both ends of the floor. But that's what you would expect. Like he said it after the game against. Kevin Durant on I believe it was Tuesday um, he's like I, I, what did you learn he's like how far I need to go in order to reach that level and he talked about the speed that KD yes. played with and how he he was like I do everything fast controlling pace right. and Boemby's like I'm moving fast with everything I'm doing he's moving slow Mm-hmm. He, he's he's dictating the pace of the game, and I think that's where Wemby like health is the mo- of of the utmost important thing with any young player, particularly for him. But one thing we do know that he has is he has the mind, the intelligence, the self awareness um, in order to reach his potential, whatever that may be. And you talk about the potential. Let's talk about Chet Holmgren because Chet has a mind as well, and his mm-hmm. mind uh, is not afraid to let you know that he's one of the best players early in this game. He's talking to people. He's hitting some big shots. He's a nice lob threat for Shea Gilgeous Alexander. Alexander, what have we seen from Chet, and what do we like about what, we, what we've seen so far from him? It's like Jokic said, he just seems to put some fat on him. He said, body. I don't know if you can be fatter if you're not fat, which I thought was a very good question. <laughs> it was very a, astute. Yeah, very was, wise. It was very wise of Chet <laughs> to say that, but he he looks awesome. I mean, like, I think OKC, like, they're like they're like three or four years ahead of, of the Spurs right now in terms of the development of their young guys and the fact they have SGA mm. as a star already. So for Chet, it's cool to see him using these different roles, like Mark Dagnall, OKC's head coach, doing a great job of saying, hey, Chet, we know you can do stuff with the ball in your hands. He's occasionally bringing the ball up the floor. He's attacking from the perimeter. They're using him inside. They're using him as a screener. He's doing everything on offense. And like similarly to Wemby, he's not quite as long or, or quite as freakishly you know, athletic in the ways that Wemby is with his length, Slenderman. But Chet is like a—he's a slender man in his own right. Like he could have thrown that costume on too, and it would have looked crazy as well. Mm. Um, Chet, Chet impacting the game so much on defense as well. It's um, nice to see those two rookies. I just—I look forward to seeing them battle for many years to come. It seems like there's like a—even if they won't admit it, there's got to be a little bit of animosity against each other, right? Chet's got the perfect opportunity yes. to wear a grim reaper costume and be the slim <laughs> reaper next year, yeah. and then we just have the slender man battle between the, these two guys, mm-hmm. and then KD's like their godfather that they look yeah. up to. 
do. I mean, it, it's a great little triangle of basketball right there. I like that. Now, we talked about the good. Let's talk about the bad. The Bucks' defense is terrible, historically mm-hmm. terrible right now. And uh, we know how this goes, KOC. You, you put talent together. You put expectations with that talent. And then when the expectations aren't met, people start pointing the finger. Right now, it feels like people are pointing at the head coach in Milwaukee. Is it true that it's tough to have a championship core and roster without a championship coach? Because that is the question right now about aging, Adrian I mean, Griffin. Oh, didn't we see it last year with Boston? Joe Missoula, his mm-hmm. first year as a rookie head coach, thrown into it. Um, seemed like he was in over his head during the postseason. This this year for Boston, we'll see if he ends up better. With the Bucks, Giannis is the guy who wanted them to hire Adrian Griffin. The Bucks interviewed Nick Nurse, who's been great in Philadelphia. They wanted to get Nick Nurse. It's Giannis who wanted Griffin. So then we see what happens at the start of the season. You get Terry Stotts. They bring in a veteran coach. He's gone. He wants to leave. Didn't like the relationship with Griffin. And now we see this team that is has like these older older veterans, and you're playing this hyper aggressive defensive scheme. They're hemorrhaging points at the basket because like this team is being pulled out to the perimeter. They're overplaying everything, everything, right. and, and it looks disastrous away away from what Bud had done for years to great success and consistent success. And Bud is underrated as a defensive coach. He's yes. definitely a defensive schemer, right? He's done a lot of schemes that have been taken by other teams despite people acting like he's not a good 100%. basketball coach. But right? Bud is like a, one of the better coaches at building a system. He was not a good coach at making a micro adjustments in the postseason, which mm-hmm. is why a change had to be made. But instead, they hired a coach who doesn't seem to be any good at building a system. And we also don't know if he's any good at making adjustments because <laughs> I think with Griffin, he had 14 interviews uh, to be a head coach ahead of the Bucks hiring him. Um, uh, no other team wanted to hire him. And now we're at this point where it's like, okay, maybe he's a great motivator. Maybe Giannis can kind of, you know, have a relationship with him um, where Giannis can, like, they can, you know, have some friction. And Giannis can say, I want to stay in the game. Keep me in the game. Put me on the opponent's best, best scorer. Like, Bud wasn't willing to do that against Jimmy Butler with the Heat. Maybe that's where things can be beneficial. But everything else... So far, it looks significantly worse, and I have some concerns for Bucks. Not to mention their defense, but like the way Giannis is still taking these pull-up jumpers at the beginning, like in the middle of the shot clock. Why is he shooting so much when you have Damian Lillard on the team? Why is Giannis not screening for Damian Lillard in the pick they, and roll? They need a conversation often? about the economy of shots. I mean, the, the fact weird. that Malik Beasley is taking more shots than Dame Lillard and Giannis Antetokounmpo doesn't make any sense. It's the, and it, I think Malik Beasley would agree up. with that. He's like, what, what is going on? Why am I getting the ball at the end of shot there's, clock? There's something fundamentally wrong there with the Bucs. Um, uh, I, I still think like you, they, they have enough talent. They deserve to remain in the championship conversation, but the system looks awful. And if that doesn't change soon, it's it's going to be hard to feel like that they actually belong on, in that same class as everybody else. Because yes, you upgrade from from Drew Holiday to Damian Lord on offense, even though you aren't making full use of him yet. It's a downgrade on defense, but from Bud to Griffin may be the greatest downgrade of all that team had. When you're giving up 122 points per game, it's not good. The only other team giving up more points is the Washington Wizards, which oh. if you're in any conversation <laughs> you know, with Washington, you you are in a gross conversation. <laughs> you don't want to be in that conversation. You don't want to be in that conversation. Jordan Poole's throwing yeah. lobs off the, off the backboard. <laughs> now I understand why uh, LeBron and Steph Curry had some issues. I understand it now. Uh, the 
the NBA, they both got a ring. Yeah, they both got a ring. Hey, they're both champions. <laughs> uh, the NBA in-season tourney begins uh, Friday, today, mm-hmm. November 2nd. Uh, what teams do you expect to see contend? I've thrown out the Kings. I've seen some people throw out, you know, even like the Pistons. Mm-hmm. They're a fun team. Jalen Duran looks great so far. Kate Cunningham looks great. But is there any team that you circle and you say, that's a team that can win the in-season tournament? I mean, it's got to be the top team still. I mean, Boston's okay. rolling. They're undefeated at this point. A team like Dallas. I mean, those teams are like playing at a high level right now. It doesn't mean that they will be come April, May, June, but right now they are. So it's hard to hard to pick against those teams. I would hope the Suns can get back in that conversation. They, like they talked before uh, the, the the tournament began about before they had all these injuries about how they want to win the tournament. Um, but they're missing Devin Booker. Uh, they, they've been missing Bradley Beal. He's shooting. I'm worried about Beal. The back doesn't look good in those right. practice shots of him shooting. Um, but you hope for a team like Phoenix can get back into it. And I think, you know, if you're thinking about kind of like some. Golden uh, State? I mean, Golden State for they, sure. They're on my list. I mean, I think like these are like the veteran teams, but like mm-hmm. young teams maybe that are, you know, like you mentioned Detroit. What about a team like that could like rattle off some wins like Oklahoma City, somebody like that? New even, Orleans. I mean, New Orleans. Had a great comeback against OKC the other night. Something Zion like looks that. great. Yeah, I'd love to see a team like that make a run and get to the Final Four in Vegas. That that that's my hope that we see a young team make a run. One last thing, and this is personal. Uh, were you surprised by Cooper Flag's decision to go play for Duke? We did the good, we did the bad. Now let's do the ugly. No, it, it seems like it's destiny. Okay, <laughs> I feel like he got typecast. If I were him, I would, I would say, <laughs> I, 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 "This isn't me. This isn't who I am." Um, but uh, shout out to Cooper Flag, 2025 number one pick potentially. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on him. KOC, thanks so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. And uh, we will see you next week here on FanDuel TV. 